Welcome to the Design Exec Club podcast, featuring global design executives discussing how to solve and accelerate to a better future with the design lens. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder and chair of the Driven by Design Awards. Over the last 18 months, I've had the privilege to interview a wide range of design leaders. We've re-edited and tweaked the audio and republished these for you to learn, be inspired and understand how others are getting to the future faster and working to create a better future. And we're here with Terry McKinley. G'day, Terry. Hello, folks. Now, Terry, you're with Frog Design. I am, yeah. And uh, joining us also is Kirsten Mann. Hey, Mark, thanks for remembering me. You're in the room, huh? <laughs> so, so I think some of the magic of television is that you don't see things off camera. Our listeners, I had in the corner of my eye as I was talking to Turi, I had this waving hand like, don't forget about me, I'm in the room here. What's yeah? it this random voice starts speaking, so otherwise it's a bit weird. Now, I do need to let the listeners know that we are in Brooklyn, where at the original WeWork site, which is right next to a a train line, and the trains will be constant as some ambient noise, but that's a great thing about doing a field recording that we go get some ambient noise that takes place. It's also the nature of New York that subways are a part of our lives. And it's also right next to your office. It is. (laughs) So did you want to tell us a bit about what your current role is? Sure. I've actually been at Frog for about 15 years in this industry an enormously long time. I started as a interaction designer before the title existed. And throughout my years at Frog, I've really focused on understanding the people that we're designing products for. So design research, human-centered design. But over the course of my career, as the complexity of the products that are designed today has really shifted to be about You know, fundamentally, we don't design standalone products anymore. We design experiences that need to evolve over time and build a relationship. They're never static either, are they? Exactly. So my role as a designer has really shifted to realize that we're designing for the customer. We're also designing for the employees that need to deliver that experience. The two-sided coin. (laughs) Exactly. And very often the company has to shift or change who they are, how they think, how they act to be able to really build those relationships over time. So my role, I'm now an executive director um, of what we call org activation, which is bringing designers uh, into the process of making new experiences, but thinking about not just the thing that we create, but how it's created within the company that's delivering it. Right, and you, it was interesting. You, you mentioned earlier that you did your, one of your first degrees was in anthropology. Yes. Was it was there a t- moment in your life where you knew you would be in design, or is it something that has just evolved and you've ended up where you are? Well, I had the delight of working at MIT in the sort of dot com boom time period. I was doing. I was ending up working with a lot of professors who had these amazing ideas, and yet the things they were making and trying to bring to market, nobody really understood. Them or could use them and there was this just fundamental gap between the mindset of the person who made the thing and the people they wanted to use it. So I was doing a lot of like fixing that interface and that's kind of fundamentally frustrating as somebody who wants to really have an impact. I wanted to move up front in the design process to be able to, before the thing gets built, understand who we're building it for and how we built it. So that's how I moved into uh, from anthropology into design. And was there some moment in your earlier childhood where you thought, 
I want to be an anthropologist or what was the kind of thinking then? How did you do a degree in anthropology? Because it's a lot more common now. We were talking about this yeah. earlier, but it, it wasn't as common when you did it. Okay, so my first ambition was art history. Um, and we were, in art history, we'd gone through maybe six weeks looking at the evolution of the halo which it does change throughout history. Um, but I was asking the professor, why? Why? I mean, yes, I can see the difference, but why? What was, t what was happening in society to make the disk change from a nimbus of light to a golden disk to a crystal disk, all that kind of thing? And her response was, wait until you get to your PhD, then you can ask those sorts of questions. And at the same time, I was taking a course on uh, symbolic anthropology, looking at advertising culture, which is all about how society reacts to visual imagery and things like that. So it was a very natural transition to say, well, I'm interested in what this means and how it impacts how we live. And that was how I sort of made that. Oh, what move. a beautiful switch. And it's a beautiful segue to a whole, like we've been speaking to a lot of design leaders such as yourself, who have made this transition to really help educate the organizations they're working with, but also their own organizations as well. So you deal with some of the most amazing brands and um, organizations that people like. So what are some of your recent clients maybe that you can mention? Um, I can't mention all my clients. Right. <laughs> but, um, and, and that's actually a really important thing. So so we, we know that there's some, some people that you can mention. There's people that you can't mention. So we don't want to go into any of those that, that can't be mentioned. But there are some organizations that really like to crow about the fact that they've invested in doing something awesome that's human-centered. There's other people who are actually still a little bit reserved. I think that's got to do with where they're up to in validation, or is it still a strategic initiative that they don't want announced? So, yeah. I, so I think this question of where, what is the design maturity of an organization is a pretty fascinating question. And um, for Frog, we are a, uh, a global strategic consultancy, so we work with companies at whatever level they are at. So we kind of have to meet them at quite different places. And how do you um, determine that? Like, how do you determine... Their maturity? Yeah. What, are you using a certain one of the matrices that people... Like I think very often, very often clients will come to us and they say, I need to, I need design thinking. Can you do a design thinking training? Or I need, um, I need to launch a new product or I need to act like a startup or I need to, you know, get something to market fast. The question for us then is, okay, so that's the thing you want, but what is it behind that that is driving that need? If you're saying, I want design thinking, what is it that you're trying to change about your, your team, your employees, your company culture to get there? If you're saying, I need to act like a startup, what does that really mean about who you are and what you're trying to achieve? And do you find organizations struggle? Has it been that they've kind of, they've heard it from other people and things that they need to be doing this? And that's the trigger? What do you find are the triggers that are making people think this way? Well, Harvard Business Review, right? right? <laughs> it's a great trigger. It's a great trigger. And business people read it, right? Business people read it. I think 
what we're seeing now in the industry is that there is enough dialogue around design being impactful to the bottom line of com companies, whether it's the Harvard Business Review or the DMI studies about design-driven companies outperforming the S&P 500. You're seeing um, a rising belief in the market that design has a part to play mm -hmm. in company success, but there is very little language, very little consistency around how that happens. And from my mind, I think that's because change is fundamentally a human endeavor, and it is a human endeavor that doesn't follow a single process in a single place. So it is something that has to be crafted and adapted to the organization that's going into it. About 10 years ago, we worked with GE when they were, um, they'd realized that software and understanding data and analytics needed to be a part of how that, com that hardware company was going to succeed and they needed to build a culture of design and understanding humans as part of receiving software systems, not just hardware systems. And that was a pretty amazing transformation, but that was a top-down transformation. Jeff Immelt made an enormous investment in building a design center of excellence for the company, as well as some massive back-end investments in building a common platform for the company. And so you had a real top-down push to make this new culture come to life. And GE as a company has an enormous culture of education and training, and they're very smart about how they move executives and leaders through the company. So we had a really solid base to work on transformation. At the moment, I'm working with a medtech company it's a global med tech company. They're amazing in their technology. Um, but I'm working with a very small design team. It's about 30, 35 people. And they're in a totally different place. They need to build belief within the organization that they really can be a strategic player for helping the company be successful. So they don't have that kind of top-down mandate. They don't have that kind of investment. So they need to build an entirely different set of skills and success stories to build belief layer by layer within the organization and network themselves across the company. The organizations that you're working with, and you're now having these fantastic conversations clearly at a senior level, how are they measuring their success? Very often that's one of the first things that we have to help them figure out is uh, most organizations do not have a structured way of tracking you know, the, the business value of design. So when you're starting from zero, like this med tech company is, we're helping them look back at measures of success that might exist. And those are generally more qualitative examples of, oh, your team came in and helped me be successful here and look at my market results. But moving forward, some of the strategic things they need to do is they have to start owning some measures of success. For this group in particular, their first measure of success is probably going to be rebooking by internal customers, by their, you know, internal leaders within the company, but they they have to start defining and tracking those measures of success. And one, I'm sure you've seen the Envision design maturity yeah, model. Right? Mark has drawn it up on the board. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay, okay, right. External, in-house, core, and integral. Okay. So I think there's some things I really like about the, the, the Envision model. In many ways, as you go up those sort of levels of maturity, it's about 
Their model is focused on data and tracking and analytics. And I think that is part of the story, but it is only part of the story. If you track the measures, if you have the analytics, if you do the A-B testing, all of that stuff, you have numbers. But you will not be successful leading an organization unless you can make human-to-human -human connections with business leaders around the, around the company. So what I've been doing with a very large financial services company, an automaker, this med tech company, is helping their design teams from the most senior leadership as well as sort of the full stack of the design team start understanding what are the skills that the designers need in order to be true business partners and more strategic partners with the business. So we've been building a, a framework for design skills that help these teams negotiate the human realities of trying to lead within an organization. Because just saying design is good for the user is not enough. Just saying design made this product more successful, that's a lot better, and that reads to business leaders, but it's not enough. You need to be able to help the uh, leaders see you as a partner in problem solving those really hard decisions and trade-offs that businesses always have to make, and that's when design is strategic. And, and that's really interesting because some of the people that we know who are the most successful at using design to go create the economic outcomes that the companies are after, don't ever talk about design. So we know that there's uh, one of our one of our champions in Sydney, a guy named Andy Hoyne, hugely successful in property marketing placemaking, and his theory is he walks in and says, do you want to make more money? And he says, well, can I help you sell the front 20% for a, 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 of your inventory for a greater premium? And can I help you move the back 20% faster and everyone nods their heads and says yes. Now, how he's going to do that is by using placemaking and design and the experience. But he's selling them the benefit. He's not selling them how. And I think that's one of the one of the say education areas around design at an operations and at an enterprise level is maybe we don't need everybody to be a craft-based designer to actually get design to go all the way through the organisation. Well, design is problem solving, right? So for me, as a person with anthropology in my background, then an MFA in design, um, in my career, 15 years at Frog, I, there was a moment where I was realizing that I was uh, very satisfied by working with teams to help them understand how they navigate the organization better, help them understand what it, they needed to change as a team to bring new things to market. But I was not making anything anymore. And as a designer, I felt like, am I actually a designer here? Or am I, have I departed from design? And it took me a moment to get comfortable and, and secure in the realization that when you are solving the problems for the organization, you are doing design. But you're, you're still doing it with a making bias and a human-centered bias, but you have expanded the human. You have expanded the making. So that leads to a really interesting conversation we had at our last live event, which was a question from one of the IBM team members where he was trying to work out what was the jujitsu that we needed to go do to get design to be accepted by their clients. And I took him back to the greatest breakthrough in medical uh, well, public health was actually sanitation. And the proposition that I'm now working on is maybe what it is that we have to think about is just do things that are human-centered, doing them for people, not at them, 
And does that create enough of a modal shift that the rest of it kicks into place? Because you've already got, you know, what I find is that there's a lot of resistance that happens in organizations because people say, well, des the design methodology is a cost. And you say, well, it's only a cost if you've already got another method in place, which is that you're trying to be forceful on people, which is the old, we manufacture goods, we manufacture need, rather than we actually serve and we're doing it for you which is a different methodology of different framing. You will hear, if I'm going to do user experience, that's just going to delay my delivery. You will, in different organizations, you will hear versions of those, you know, design is, if design is anything other than putting makeup on it at the end, it is somehow taking away from the process. The question of defining metrics of success for design uh, is very often about reframing that story. So if somebody says to you, well, it's going to take it longer if I do good design or if I do user experience, reframe it as involve me sooner so we can identify the problems before they become expensive ones that we need to fix later. So, you know, there is a bit of that, that reframing. I think the conversation is more powerful when you are when the person you're working with knows that you are there to solve the problem together and you are bringing the designer's ability to challenge assumptions, you are bringing a designer's ability to synthesize at the end of an hour-long conversation what we learned. So thinking about the skills that we have as leaders, it is, it's important to recognize the value you bring to the room but also to see it as a partnership in making the business successful. Yesterday we were talking with, uh, with a colleague uh, of Kirsten's at, at lunch and he was uh, discussing a, an idea that would, you know, might be an app somewhere in the future. So the, the, the space was like, oh great, there's an entrepreneurial moment, there's some innovation here. And the, the guys that I took was, let's work out what this doesn't serve yet. You know, let's ask the questions, which was really interesting because at a lunch or brunch on a Sunday, it was almost like you're stepping on my, my, my great idea. And actually, that's exactly what had to happen. We had to work out why it wouldn't work. We had to work out what wasn't going to occur. And then at the end of it, the gentleman just looked like, yeah, that was actually useful because now I know some of the things that I may be questions I need to consider or options that I don't take. And so when, we, when we're going from helping people in actually decorating it, putting lipstick on something, making it look pretty, down to actually we're going to get in and solve the problems. The language around how do you design up with the with design and how do you bring value, it seems like we're still at a cultural point that we don't have that common language, we don't know how to talk about it. Whereas if we were doing a sports, sport, a sports cast, I could turn around and I could use a whole bunch of codified language and you knew exactly what every one of those shortcut language devices meant. We don't have that about how do you manage up design. For us, we've been thinking about sort of five batches of skills that we think what we call enterprise designers need to have. So that is a design team that is working within a large organization to try to make more, more and more strategic uh, design decisions. The first part of that is a pillar of confidence. So confidence, it starts with your craft. What is your core craft? And you need to be confident in that core craft. But then the next step up is you need to have the flexibility to be able to to adapt the process, the ways of work to whatever problem exists. So those two together really show, have you show up as confident within the organization? 
the other part is you need to be able to influence the organization. So that starts with really having rich understanding of contact. The, the users is the most natural place that most design teams start, but also understanding and valuing the context of the business. If you can't speak to what, how the company makes money, how the company wins, how can you have a constructive conversation with the business? So craft, context, Within influence, once you have context, you can really start to facilitate decision making. You might not be the person making the decision, but you're facilitating the conversation, bringing in your knowledge of design of the user to solve problems together. And then once you have both influence and confidence, that's where a designer or a design team can really become advocates within the organization, really driving change. So for us, the language we've been using are confidence skills, influence skills, and advocacy skills. That's a, and that's essentially your framework, what you've just described there, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, and it, that's quite beautiful. I think if you've kind of, we've, I think you've touched on what a lot of designers say, well, I want to be strategic. I want to be having that seat at the table. Right. You need all those foundational skills that you just went through mm -hmm. to be able to have those conversations yeah. effectively. So, Terry, thank you so much for your time. I would imagine this is the first of many conversations that we'll have about design in the boardroom. It is so important that we go get collective knowledge out there. Again, thank you for your time. And uh, if people want to look you up, your social handles are? I am Turi Says on uh, Twitter, and you can always find me on LinkedIn by my name. Terry McKinley. Again, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Design Executive Club podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast software. Make sure you like us, make sure you share the news. And uh, by being subscribed, you'll find out when our next episode comes. So thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon.